The text for this morning's sermon is Galatians 5, verses 7 through 9. Galatians 5, 7 through 9. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Father, I come to you now and pray that you would work in all of our hearts, including my own, that we would remain steadfast in our trust in you and our faith in Christ. Lord, I pray for those who have not yet believed, but maybe only know about Christ, that they may believe this morning. God, we just confess that we cannot run this race without your power and your work in our lives. So we ask you to work for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. In the 2004 Olympics in Athens, during the marathon run, this something special took place, something, uh, I don't know if special is the right word, memorable took place so that anyone who's a big Olympics marathon fan probably knows what story's coming. And I know we have two marathon runners here at least, and so I know I got your guys' attention right now. This illustration's going to work, <laughs> at least for you. 2004 Olympics, there was a runner from Brazil named Vanderlei de Lima. He was in first place at the 35-kilometer mark. The finish line is at the 42-kilometer mark, so he's at the very end of the race. He's uh, in first place, trained his whole life to be in this position, trained his whole life to be this close to being an Olympic champion when something happened. A guy named Neil Haran, a 57-year-old Irish priest from London, jumped onto the course near the 22-mile mark and shoved Delima into the crowd in Athens. Quote, in his own words, I put him aside like a rugby tackle. And he recalled in a phone conversation uh, following the... The following Olympics, this dilemma got to uh, carry the torch. He got to be the one uh, in the honor position of carrying the torch. And Haran, the one who pushed him into the crowd, was being interviewed right after this. And here's what he says. When I actually saw him with my own eyes carrying the torch, I really got angry, Haran said. I looked at Vanderlei and I think, 
you would be nowhere near a star if it were not for me. Haran conceded that it was a knee-jerk, selfish reaction to some extent, but he made no apology for his feelings. Some of what I say won't be very sympathetic toward Vanderlei, Haran said. Just like my master Christ was very offensive, if needed, in what he said, I feel like on this occasion I have no choice. I cannot explain why I I assaulted the young man, put him aside like a rugby tackle, Haran said. I believe there is such a thing as destiny, things that are meant to happen, and my only feeling is, is that was meant to happen. It was providential. And so Vanderlei comes in contact with the priest. He ends up getting third in this Olympics. He gets tackled into the crowd. He ends up getting passed by two other runners and takes third place. And everyone who saw it realized this horrible thing that took place. You don't get a second chance at the Olympics, probably at his age. And Paul, when he's looking at this young church, this young church that began running well, who have all of a sudden, in a sense, been tackled, been pushed down, been stopped in their tracks, wants them to consider what is going on. So go ahead and look at verse 7. Here's what Paul says. This text that we're going to look at, the message to you is about running well. Paul says, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Literally, that word means who cut in on you? Who stopped you from running this race, from running well? It reminds us back in chapter 3 when Paul said a similar thing to this church. Uh, Oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? So he's asking a question about somebody. I don't know if this is my mic doing this or what. Uh, he, He asks a question. It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Paul's saying, when you first began, when you first had the Gospel preached to you, when I came and publicly portrayed Christ to you, did you not at that moment, begin running well in the Spirit? Have you switched course? You know, if you were coaching someone in a race, and you were the coach, and all of a sudden someone was running well, and then all of a sudden they came to a stop, you'd be like, what are you doing? Who came in and gave you bad coaching advice? When you were running well, why did you change how you were running. 
So what does he mean when Paul says they were running well? I think what he clearly means, what we've seen all through Galatians, is that running well meant they were relying on Christ through the Spirit by faith. To run the Christian life well is to never take your eyes off Christ and to live off the promises of God in the Gospel that culminate in Jesus Christ throughout your life. If you begin to run poorly, it will be because you are no longer running by faith in Christ. And in their case, the enemy came in from the outside. Paul warns in many places in the New Testament that our enemies will rise up from within the church. False teachers will rise up from among you. They'll be among your own flock. In this particular case, these are false teachers outside the church. They're Judaizers who are claiming to be Christ followers, though, teaching them that, Christ, or that Paul did not teach them how to run well. That they not only need to trust in Christ, but they need to trust in the law in their own efforts in order to become part of the people of God. And so he says, who hindered you? He's talking about these Judaizers. Now, let's think for a minute about false teachers. The Bible consistently talks about false teachers. The amazing thing is they all carry similar traits. And, uh, for example, in 2 Peter chapter 2, I just went through and I took all the adjectives as Peter's warning them to watch out for false teachers. Listen to these adjectives that describe these people who will run onto the course, tackle you down, and cause you to stop running well. Here's the adjectives from 2 Peter 2. You can go home and read the text, they're secretive, they're sensual, they're greedy, they're exploiting, they indulge, they're lustful, they have defiling passion, they despise authority, they're bold and willful, they do not tremble, they're like irrational animals. Creatures of instinct who just go after whatever the flesh wants. They're blaspheming. They're ignorant, even though they speak confidently about the things they, they claim to know. They revel openly. In pure daylight, they show their folly. Their eyes are full of, in, of adultery, insatiable for sin, enticing, loving wrongful gain, waterless springs. You know, think of a waterless spring. Something that promises life, but you go there and there's nothing there to satisfy you. Miss. They're loud. They're boastful. They promise freedom, but they're slaves to corruption. 
You might say, well, I would, I would avoid somebody like that. I don't know. Someone who's so sensual and greedy in about the things of this world might tempt you and I right in to their empty promises. These people are usually charismatic. They're bold. They're flattering. They make you think that they're coming for your good. You might be thinking, well, I don't know that I need this sermon. I know the Gospel and I'm pretty secure. Well, when these types of people showed up around Peter, according to Paul, Peter quickly became out of step with the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Therefore, if Peter, who was running well for a while and then became out of step with the Gospel, can be influenced by false teachers, then you can too. They're deceptive. They don't come forward and say, I'm a false teacher. You want to leave the Gospel of Jesus Christ? <coughs> Usually, they come and say, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. Have you ever looked at this? And then they seek to sidetrack you away from the centrality of Christ and the Gospel. Notice that Paul understood in this circumstance that their lack of obedience of faith and their wavering was a result of the false teachers deceiving them. Look at verse 8. He says, This persuasion is not from Him who calls you. Paul steps in and clearly helps them discern what the teaching on circum or that this teaching on circumcision is not from the Lord, but from false teachers. So you have a church who's beginning to have their faith waver because false teachers come in. Paul comes in and clearly says, this is not from the Lord. This is not a word from God. This persuasion is not from Him who calls you. He's saying, when I presented Christ the first time, you heard the call of God and you came and your life changed and you were running well and you think the same one's talking, but this is a different one talking. This isn't coming from the same source. Here's one thing we learned from this. You and I need each other to help each other discern when a false gospel is beginning to captivate our hearts and turn us back to the truth. You cannot be safe on your own. Outside a body of believers who love the gospel, you might help a brother one day, and the next day you might be the one ready to fall into the same trap that Peter almost fell into. Right at the beginning of this letter, here's what he says. He says, I'm, 
in verse 6, uh, chapter 1, verse 6, I'm astonished you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. You're, you're deserting the one who called you in the beginning and you're turning to something else. And notice what he says right away in that first verse. You were running well. Who hindered you, these false teachers, from obeying the truth? What do we expect Paul to say here? You would expect him to say, you were running well. Who hindered you from believing the truth? Why does Paul say obeying the truth? Actually, if you've looked at all of Paul's letters, he has a habit of doing this. When you would expect him to say believe, he'll say obey. Or he'll say love. So how are we going to work through uh, this statement? We need to understand the relationship between faith and obedience, which is the key to running well. You see, the Judaizers come in and say, what? You're going to trust in Christ? And you're not going to live according to the law? Don't you know God wants you to live godly lives? If you don't have the law, you don't have anything. You're not going to be able to live a godly life that way. You need to pick up this law and you need to be obedient to it. And if God sees you do it good enough, you're in. But what Paul teaches is that obedience to God comes from faith. Listen to Romans 10.16, how he puts these together. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, the Lord, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? <laughs> so Paul's saying, I preach the gospel. They haven't all obeyed the gospel. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? So he connects and uses interchangeably believing and obeying. It's important to understand this relationship and we can easily understand it just in everyday circumstances. Imagine you're outside and there's a couple walking down the sidewalk and the husband has a heart attack, falls over on the ground. This couple happens to be from out of town. And they say, tell me, tell me, where's the hospital? Where's the hospital? And I say, hop on Dakota right here, head south, and it's going to be on your right. And they say, okay. And then they head north down Dakota and go away from the hospital. I come running after them and say, wait a minute, wait a minute, why are you going this way? Don't you believe me? The hospital's that way? If they say, yeah, I believe. I believe you. I don't trust that they believe. Because if they really believe, they'd be driving towards the hospital. Faith is inextricably connected to obedience. And here's the key. Faith is the root. Obedience is the fruit. 
Faith is the root. Obedience is the root. So if you want to talk about saving faith, there's one sense where you can talk about obedience, being obedient to the gospel. Or you can talk about the root, believing the gospel. The fruit shows that the root is alive. I'll give you some more examples in Paul. Romans 1.5 Through whom we've received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name among all the nations. That's Romans 1.5 To bring about, Paul preaches, to bring about the obedience of faith. You see, you bring about the fruit from the root. Obedience comes from faith. Romans 16.26, he says this, But the gospel has now been disclosed through the prophetic writings that has been made known to all the nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. So the gospel goes forth to bring about the obedience of faith. 1 Thessalonians 1.3 Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfast hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. You see the fruit from faith there? The work of faith. There's work that comes out of it. There's labor. There's love. There's steadfast hope out of this. Another way to put it, according to Tom Schreiner, is that obeying the truth means believing the truth. In John 6.28, they asked Jesus, what must we do to be doing the works of God? That's a good question. What must we be doing to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, if He says keep the law, we're all in trouble. Jesus answered them, this is the work of the law, that you believe in Him who He has sent. Fruit. (laughs) Faith is the root. And faith, in a sense, believing God is the work of God that blossoms into all sorts of fruit. The Galatian church has been tempted to believe in hope in their own potential to keep the law and be saved. But to run well is to not put confidence in your flesh, but to put confidence in Christ. To trust Him to bring about any good thing that you would do. Let's look at two applications here. Understand that faith in God and His Word is the root of obedience to that Word. Here's the principle. You become like that which you worship. Whatever you believe in, you'll become like. That which you love, you will become like. If you worship idols that lack power, lack wisdom, lack satisfaction, lack life, your life 
will lack power over sin. It'll lack God's wisdom. You'll be unsatisfied and you'll be a walking dead person. It's a principle taught all throughout the Bible. If you really want to change, if you really want to become godly, then you need to believe by faith in the God of the Bible, love Him, and worship Him. And when you do that, amazingly, you begin to become like that which you worship. Listen to the psalmist in Psalm 115. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to Your name give glory for the sake of Your steadfast love and faithfulness. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. All right, so there's the worshiping. Our God, He's in the heavens. He does whatever He wants. Here's the contrast. Their idols are silver and gold. The work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. Eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Noses who do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel. Feet, but do not walk. They do not make a sound in their throat. You can make a picture of an idol that looks like a person, but the ears don't work, the mouth doesn't work. There's no movement. There's no life in the body. And then verse 80 says this, Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. O Israel, trust in the Lord. If you are struggling with obedience... I know you're struggling with worship. You don't need to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and try harder in the flesh. You don't need the list of rules to say, all right, I'm going to nail it this week. What you need is you need a vision of who God is and who Christ is for you. And when you love Him and believe in Him and trust Him and worship Him, your life will begin to look like Him. If there's a teenager who idolizes a band, they're the coolest people in the world. That's who they're listening to all day long. Show me a picture of the lead singer. Show me what kind of clothes they wear. That'll be your teenager you will become like that which you worship. They were running well because they were seen by faith Jesus Christ. But some religious-looking people came along and said, you, gotta, you can't just do that. you got to do this. And when they started losing faith in the Gospel, they stopped running the race well. That's why in 1 John 3, we read these words. I know I've said this before, but to me this is so profound. You know, we all long for the day we'll never sin again. Or at least if you're a Christian, that's what you long for. You long for the time when you quit sinning. 
And we know, or we ought to know, that the day we quit sinning will be the day when Christ returns. Here's the question I want to ask you. Why is that? Why is it when Christ shows up, you quit sinning? You want to know what I thought it was? I thought it was because God changes this body that's dying into a a super body that will never die. God is going to do that. But listen in 1 John 3 at the reason why you will quit sinning one day. And also the reason why you'll seek to live a holy life on this earth. 1 John 3. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. Right now, children of God, we are. John knows what you're, th- what you, what you'll think. Yeah, but look at all this sin that I still have. He says, see what kind of love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. We're not sinless yet. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him. Because, now get this, we shall see Him as He is. You want to know when you won't sin anymore? When you see Christ no longer through a mere dimly, but you see Him crystal clear. You will not sin anymore because you will worship perfectly as you see that Christ. And no more sin will come out of your life. Now, John isn't done. Here's what he says. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. So anyone who's looking to Christ, waiting for Christ to return, going to their Bible, wanting to see the glory of Christ, according to John, that's the one who purifies himself in this life. You see that? It's looking forward in worship and love for Christ that will cause you to purify your life. That is 100% different than law. You're looking, the gospel is, is you can't do it. Quit looking to yourself. Look to the one who did it, Christ. He is enough. And when you look to Him, lo and behold, by the power of God, you become more like Christ. This is why, as Christians, you don't get saved and coast to heaven. That's not, that's not what we do. What we do is we get saved, we see something of the glory of Christ, and we spend the rest of our life seeking God with all of our heart, knowing that when that happens, our lives are going to start to look more like Him and God is going to get glory out of our life. The second application here I want us to see is do not trust in your own discernment. Don't isolate yourself 
you can be easily deceived. More than likely, it's going to be the case that you and I will one day be standing in a hospital room. We'll be standing with each other in a hospital room, at a funeral home, at a county jail, in my office for counseling. Maybe you're getting ready to leave your spouse or your spouse is leaving you. Or apart from the grace of God, I would be getting ready to leave my spouse. We are going to have to be there in those moments when the greatest doubt is being pressed forward and we're tempted to doubt the Gospel, doubt the truth. We're going to have to be there for each other every day and remind each other of this Gospel. You realize that? The number one question I hear in counseling are the number one responses, Sam, I already know this. My response is, well, welcome to the Christian life where you spend the rest of your life seeking by faith to believe things you already know because that's where the power comes from. We ought not be offended when the Christian, when as Christians we remind each other of the things we already know because the reason you're doubting, maybe the reason you're in the mess you're in is because you may only know it in your head and you quit loving it and trusting in it and by faith. So we ought not be offended when we as Christians come to each other and remind each other of Christ. This is what Paul's doing. He presented Christ to them at the beginning. He's coming back and he's reminding them, here's who Christ is. Run well. That's why Paul told Timothy, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you'll save both yourselves and your hearers. I'm here to tell you, if you haven't been keeping a close watch on your doctrine, you're in a dangerous spot. You may coast into church and think, I'm good, I'm not about to walk away from the Gospel. You're in a dangerous spot if you haven't kept a close watch on your doctrine, if you're living off what you already knew back there and you're not daily looking at it, you're in a dangerous place. Watch your life and watch your doctrine so that you and those around you may be saved. The last point, expose false gospels so that your brothers and sisters may finish the race. Look at what he says, verse 9. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. What does he mean by this? So these people came in not speaking from God, and then he says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Well, it's helpful when Paul uses statements like that in other letters when we're trying to figure out what does he mean by this. In 1 Corinthians 5, verse 6, the Corinthian church is living in licentious, uh, licentiously, and there's big divisions in the church. And there's even a guy who's permitted to sleep with his stepmother 
inside the congregation. So Paul's writing this letter. He wants to deal with church discipline here. And one of the things he says in in verse 6, he says, your boasting is not good. The fact that you're not dealing with this guy who's living in blatant sin. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Here's what he's saying. It's not just this guy's problem. This little bit of leaven that goes into dough will raise the whole lump. You don't take false gospels lightly. You want to see the harshest words of Christ? It's to those who are actively teaching false doctrine. Those who are leavening the lump, the the church. And Paul is telling the Galatians that they need to be careful. They need to not buy into these false Gospels for it's going to affect everybody. We must expose doctrines that distort the Gospel out of love for each other. Now, we all know that or we all ought to know that the Mormon church distorts the person of Christ, totally gets rid of the Gospel. We know that the Jehovah's Witnesses do the same thing. They strip deity and then they add work salvation. I'm not so concerned. I don't want you to be deceived when they come to your door. Don't get me wrong. But that's not Satan's only two moves. So I was considering this week, how do false doctrines affect us? Have they affected you this year? That's a question I want you to consider. And I'm going to tell you a few ways that I think we can be deceived into this. I think we need to confront it. I think we need to talk to each other about these sorts of things. Now, don't get me wrong. Jesus came after false teachers really in a strong way. So did Paul. So do all the writers in Scripture. And they did this when the false teachers were teaching things that distorted the centrality of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Understand, there's different tier system of doctrine. Tier 1 issues, if you mess with these, you lose the Gospel. That's what Paul is dealing with in this text. What I'm not saying is you have a church where one person's convinced in this view of the end times, the next person is convinced of this view, and they're both condemning each other, saying we're going to lose the gospel if we don't agree with each other. The Bible makes room, demonstrates for us how we walk through first things. For example, 1 Corinthians 15.3. Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ Jesus died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised, and on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, that He appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve. He says, I delivered these things as of first importance. When he's talking to the Corinthians, he says, I only have one sermon, it's Christ crucified. Now we know that's not true in the sense of uh, he taught him all sorts of things in First Corinthians. But what's he saying? The first thing, the main thing that overwhelms everything else is the gospel of 
Christ. We have examples, for example, in Romans 14, people disagree on whether or not you can eat food now that Christ has come. And he gives the answer. He says you can eat food, but he's like, here's the deal. If your brother thinks he can't, keep your opinion to yourself. Don't cause your brother to stumble. If your eating causes your brother to stumble, stop eating for the sake of love. So what's the difference? Why isn't he handling truth exactly the same way? Well, it's not central, hitting at the very heart of what the Gospel is. So what could we be tempted to... How could we be tempted to walk away from the Gospel? I'm just going to give you a few examples. You could do a hundred. hundred of these, I think. And you might not think these are big deals, but I think they come right at the center of the Gospel. If you get man wrong, the doctrine of man wrong, you'll get the Gospel wrong. Do you know that? If you have a wrong view of man, if you think man's basically good, for example, or if you think man isn't under the curse of God until Christ returns, you're going to get a different Savior. You're going to get a different promise. Those who want to claim Christianity but say Adam and Eve weren't real people, guess what? Because of science they'll say this, you'll lose the Gospel if you lose Adam and Eve. Many Christians are tempted to lose the Gospel because of medical issues. You say, well, how is that? Well, you get sick. What's your first hope? Is your first hope the doctor? What's your theology doing in that moment? Are you going to live forever? You're not going to live forever. Your first hope is not the doctor. Your first hope is Christ. Ought we to go to the doctor? Yes, it's a grace of God that we could go to the doctor and experience less pain. You can lose the Gospel so fast. Where do you spend your time? What's your hope in? What are you reading? What are you thinking about? Look at your doctrine. See if it makes sense to be doing what you're doing. Then you got the other side of it. You got the natural side that'll say, don't go to the doctor, do it God's way. Go the natural way. Eat natural foods. Eat God's foods. Well, I'm here to tell you, every food that's here on this earth is under the curse, just as we are. As simple as looking at diet plans and medical issues, we can lose the Gospel of Christ and put our hopes in all sorts of things. So then no longer we're talking about Christ, we're talking about all these opinions on how to best live down here. It happens to me and it happens to you. And we need to watch it. We need to look at each other and remind each other of what the Gospel is and who our Savior is and where our hope is found. This church is not immune from false Gospels sneaking in and being deceived like Peter was deceived. You need to keep me focused on Christ. I need that. And you need it too. And so I just want you to, I just want to challenge you. Think about, what are you thinking about? 
What's your theology saying? Who is Christ? You know, when Paul was dealing with this in Colossians 2, here, this was his argument. He says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those in Laodicea and those who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged and knit together in love to reach the full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom. Here's his argument. There is no wisdom beyond Christ. All the wisdom in the world is summed up in the person of Christ. Now he's going somewhere with this argument. I say this that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in the body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. He says, the reason why I'm saying this is I'm worried that people have come and they've just did this a little bit to you. Just distracted you over a little bit so that now you're chasing something that isn't Christ. You've forgotten that in Christ is the fullness of wisdom. And he says, and then he goes on to say, therefore, as you've received Jesus Christ, so walk in Him. That's all this message is, is walk by faith in Christ. And then he culminates in this in the next chapter. If then you've been raised with Christ, Seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above and not on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Here's what he's saying. Look at your life. Be careful, Colossian people. Those at Colossae. Be careful that you haven't started with Christ and then started down these tangents so that your mind is no longer looking at Christ but you're chasing all these plausible arguments. Isn't that interesting? They're, pl- they're plausible. They don't come as crazy arguments. But it, Satan's deceptive and he wants to get your eyes off Christ. So my prayer is that God would help us help each other run well. Keep the Gospel. You can't live off past doctrine that you've stored away and now you don't have a faith battle. You need to be looking at it. You need to be seeing Christ. You need your heart loving Him. And when you're loving Christ, your life will look different. Father, thank You for Your Word. Father, I thank You that Your Word reminds us how careful we ought to be that we not be turned astray from Christ. Father, I pray that none of us here would put our hopes ultimately in things of this world. Lord, I pray that our ultimate hope wouldn't be in medicine and in doctors Lord, I pray that our ultimate hope wouldn't be in some diet plan or new way of eating and living. Father, I pray that our eyes would be firmly focused on Christ and that the fruit that comes out of our life would be love 
and obedience for each other and for those around us. God, I pray You would do this in Jesus' name. Amen.